All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. Very excited uh, to speak with Matt Spoke, who's the founder and CEO of the Open Application Network. Uh, used to be known as Aon, uh, that's still going to come into play. We're going to talk about that relationship. Um, used to be referred to as Nuco. Uh, and, and before that, Matt was at, uh, at Deloitte, where he was one of our supporters back when I worked with him uh, while I was still at Coindesk on the consensus conferences. So we've had uh, a, um, a long and winding road of multiple types of relationships, but, uh, but, but Matt is certainly one of the um, more impressive entrepreneurs in the industry. Um, he even sent me a sweatshirt, so note to everybody. Um, that's going to have your swag uh, rock during these podcasts. I will wear it uh, if it arrives in time uh, and, and, and never turn down free clothes, especially something as, as warm as this one. So um, this isn't all going to be, you know, uh, just a puff piece, obviously. I think, <laughs> I think you know better. But, um, but you know, Matt, why don't, we, why don't we start off by um, just a, a little bit more of your background and, and like the aha moment of, of getting into crypto, kind of going all in, making the move from, you know, the cushier job at Deloitte where you're part of the early blockchain team um, and, 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 and all the way up through uh, the evolution of Aon. And what I thought was a pretty transparent and, and spot on po- uh, post that you uh, made a couple weeks ago with respect to this rebrand and a slight change in strategic direction. Um, and we're going to get to, you know, I'll let you explain the post in your own words, but, but let, let's just kind of start with how we got to this conversation today. Uh, and, and then we'll kind of dive in from there. Yeah, sure. I, um, yeah. My quick background in terms of like how it relates to this space. I, I can't say that I had, you know, particularly an aha moment. I, I, I got exposed to Bitcoin super accidentally. My, my brother was super excited about it back in 2012, 2013. Uh, I completely ignored him for about a year. Uh, I was working at Deloitte uh, at the time. I was kind of chasing after my CPA designation after having come out of business school um, until there was this opportunity at Deloitte to, to, spend some, um, to, to spend some time writing a proposal for the executives of the firm around, hey, what's an area of technology that we should be investing in as a firm that you think is completely like, under the radar of most large organizations around the world. And having had a little bit of familiarity with Bitcoin at the time, I kind of doubled down and started learning. I, just, I, need, to, I need to read up on this. This could be one area that nobody's talking about. Uh, so in uh, late kind of 2013, I wrote a proposal for Deloitte about the importance of Bitcoin, this new asset that was being created, the possibilities it held for a future financial market. Um, that would be important for Deloitte to understand given their role as an auditor, as a third party kind of financial auditor in, in, in most public markets. And the original premise in that paper, I was trying to be a little edgy, was that if, if Bitcoin kind of saw the light of day and, and reached its full promise, there could be a future state where Deloitte was out of business because nobody would need secondary kind of confidence in financial information because it would be inherent to the protocols that we build commerce on top of. Mm-hmm. Um, and that got enough people's attention internally that at the beginning of 2014, I got uh, effectively a commitment from the firm to start building a research team around Bitcoin. Um, I, I was based in Toronto at the time. Getting to know the community here 
naturally had me stumble across the Ethereum team, uh, early days of Ethereum, learning about what they were building, seeing the excitement develop around that community, um, and had a chance to meet some of the early, early kind of uh, co-founders in that project. So what started off as a Bitcoin team for Deloitte turned into like, hey, you better go understand the whole broad context of what's going on in the blockchain space and crypto space. Uh, and I led that team for about two years until uh, early 2016. Um, and for a number of reasons, mostly because I was just seeing so much excitement in the startup kind of tech space rather than what was going on on the, on the corporate side in, in a large consulting firm, uh, I decided to leave Deloitte and start a company. And uh, I started a company called Nuco. Um, Nuco's original premise was that there was going to need to be, for lack of a better analogy, a Red Hat business model wrapped around uh, Ethereum. And that Red Hat business would, would chase after uh, enterprises, would chase after kind of mainstream market players that were going to look at this technology as an important evolution in their businesses. And so we built Nuco on that premise, um, got funded in 2016, did a couple of rounds of equity funding, uh, and then helped start the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance in early 2017, uh, where I still serve on the board of directors. Um, alongside companies like Consensus and, and JP Morgan and Microsoft and a few others. Um, but then, you know, I think in the process of getting a lot closer to the Ethereum ecosystem, our big takeaway was there's a lot going on. It's very political. It's very decentralized for better and for worse. Uh, and then if you wanted to translate this up to like enterprise requirements, there wasn't really a direct way for enterprises or companies in general to get their input into how the tech was being built and what requirements and feedback they needed or, or features they needed as it was built out. Uh, so we started kind of side of desk writing down, if we were building this ourselves, what would, what would it look like? What decisions would we make differently than the Ethereum uh, community? Uh, and that became kind of the first iteration of the Aeon white paper. Um, and a lot of it was, was borrowed and, and, uh, and you know, taken from the, the great ideas that were kind of um, brought to market by Ethereum. But we had some kind of unique takes that we thought, hey, the best way for us to influence the design of this protocol is to build our own. Uh, so we started building Aeon as a public protocol in early, kind of mid-2017, we published the white paper. Uh, and then we published the Aeon network. Uh, Genesis block went out in April of 2018. Um, and we did a lot of work to kind of improve and, and build upon that protocol, uh, bring new technical features into the protocol that didn't exist in the Ethereum community. Um, and not for better or for worse, just a different approach to how we would build these things. Um, and then more recently, and I think what we'll probably get into is um, after all of that, after building a lot of great things, um, we found ourselves in this kind of tug of war of saying my tech is better than your tech, but none of us understand why any of it matters. None of us understand what problems we're trying to solve in the market other than I think the narrative that was developing around like money and uh, you know DeFi, which was like getting good amount of like hot net heads nodding around the world, but and everything else was a little bit ambiguous. What's the point of this technology at scale? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what led us to this recent uh, strategic pivot, as you put it, um, to really start to carve out who's our audience, what's the target use cases that we're interested in solving for, um, and that's what's going to take us into 2020. You know, it it kind of sounds obvious in retrospect. Um, and yet so many other layer one protocols are still not either coming to that realization or, or taking that tack. Um, what, how do you do that kind of mid build, right? Uh, you're, you're building layer one infrastructure. It's, it's a platform that you're hoping that anyone will come into and build on top of, um, you know, whether it's Aon or, um, even, you know, some significantly larger um, layer one protocols right now, the, the, the actual applications that are going to build just aren't really there, right? It's just infrastructure on infrastructure on infrastructure. And, and maybe, you know, I, I'd argue that 
um, Ethereum, maybe Cosmos are, are two of the only ones that are, are live right now that actually have application developers, you know, really yeah. um, building anything of meaningful scale on top. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you go from the mindset of, you know, we're going to build a platform technology to, well, we have to figure out which use cases are, are going to matter, you know, um, why not just kind of chuck the, the entire platform, uh, and, and, and just think about building applications, right. Or, or, or merging with another, blockchain or, or token project. We haven't seen a, yeah. a coin merger yet or anything like that, but, but it's certainly starting to make more sense. If you'd expect consolidation in um, the general industry and other services, given you know, kind of where we are in the cycle and revenues are down kind of for, for all types of companies across the board. Um, I wonder um, how much of a, a, a leap it would be to just say, you know what, we built a lot of cool things. It could be repurposed or forked by, you know, any other project, but we're going to go all in on either tooling or, you know, yeah. libraries or, or whatever on a complementary stack. Why, why um, just try to figure out use cases for, for the open application network in general? I think, I think the biggest uh, gap that we saw, I mean, I say this in hindsight and may, maybe there's obviously a bias to this, but if I had seen somebody addressing the problems that we're trying to address, I probably wouldn't have tried to become like number two in that market. And this is where our like, um, you know, sobering moment in earlier this year was if we keep going after people and telling them, Hey, you should build your application on us instead of on Ethereum. We don't have conviction behind that message. I mean, our team happens to be extremely bullish on the Ethereum protocol. We have a lot of people that love that project. Um, and so I couldn't like, confidently go out and tell people, Hey, if you're trying to build a D app or you're trying to build some DeFi application or whatever it might be, um, you're better off building it on AM than Ethereum. Cause I don't think it was true. Um, but when we started identifying this new kind of problem space that we're now focusing on, nobody was talking about it. If somebody was, um, I probably would have, you know, seeded the leadership to that team and said, Hey, let's, let's jump into somebody else. We had, we've had this consideration. We've had this conversation many times. Yeah. We better off kind of doubling down and supporting the growth of the ecosystem. If there is kind of a natural leader emerging. And I think there are some natural leaders emerging across a couple of investment theses, you know, Bitcoin in its own right and Ethereum in its own right. Um, and maybe a few others. Um, but in this category of problems, we didn't see anybody specifically focusing here. We saw people becoming enterprise blockchains. We saw people becoming, you know, Ethereum alternatives or Ethereum killers. And we saw people competing with Bitcoin, but nobody was saying, Hey, I don't want to build a decentralized internet from scratch. I don't want to build enterprise solutions. I want to build tools and solutions for like today's online marketplaces. I haven't seen a single blockchain project talk about how can I help Uber solve its problems? Do I even understand Uber's problems? Do I understand Shopify's problems? Um, and what would it need? What would I need to build to make it this kind of approachable by companies like that? Um, and in fact, like just tactically, a little, little backstory of how, how I stumbled on this because I was fortunate enough to have a really great team building our roadmap, right? We were, we built our AVM. Uh, we were working on our, our hybrid consensus algorithm. The engineering team and product team was kind of like full steam building. It gave me an opportunity to say, hey, that's going to happen whether I'm involved or not. I can step back and think a little bit more. I had a nice kind of long session with a couple of my key leaders on my team. And I had just finished reading this book, uh, call it January of, of this year, called Play Bigger. And, and in the process of reading that book, I thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun if I could get in touch with the author? Because I was really like taken away by the thesis of the book. Um, and I emailed him and I said, hey, I'd love to chat. And over the course of a couple of months, I bugged him a few times and he finally answered me. 
Um, and the concept behind Plager Bigger in hindsight is super obvious, but for companies that have not figured it out, looks really complicated. And the simple, simple insight was if you're a company or in our case, a project working on a solution that does not know what problem it solves, you're kind of going into a dead end. The companies that have succeeded in tech are companies that have first convinced the market that there is a problem worth solving and then translated that into a product, right? And that's, that's what happened with Airbnb. That's what happened with Dropbox. That's what happened with Uber. And it's been the best practice of like the largest scale tech companies of the last couple of decades where we didn't know we had a social networking problem until Facebook told us about it. We didn't know we had a, you know, room rental problem until Airbnb told us about it. And so we pulled back and said, forget about comparing tech for tech. Let's convince people that there's a problem they haven't recognized yet. And if we can really focus in on honing the narrative around that problem, we can maybe get enough interest to get people to pay attention to our solution. Uh, and so that's kind of the process we're going through. And it, it is like, it's a lot of re-architecting of how we talk about ourselves, what we're building, what types of tools we're prioritizing, things like that. But um, it's been kind of uh, reinvigorating for the team because we actually feel like we're going to market with a very different message than Ethereum and its peers. And that's been uh, you know, pretty fun to do. What, what is the problem though, or, or at least the problem space that, that you're talking about addressing? Because it's, it's, it's one thing to, to kind of shift focus from a yeah. more, you know, comparative selling standpoint. Uh, and it's quite another to just say, you know what, we want to put our chips behind Ethereum or, or, you know, we don't want to play for second best, which is totally understandable. But um, to have that realization and then just say, you know, we're going we're gonna to go find the problem. Yeah. Uh, it, it, um, I wouldn't call it like the announcement of the announcement. I think it's probably a proper realization, but like, where's, where's the, where do you even start? Right. That it's a blank canvas. Um, and that doesn't seem like it, it, it's certainly a, a mindset change, but it's not that big of a jump from or departure from, Hey, we built a solution for a problem that doesn't exist to, Hey, let's forget about the solution for a second. We've built some cool stuff, but let's go find the problems. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not sure if this works out uh, in every, in every scenario, but for us, there was something kind of very obviously right in front of us that we were spending a lot of time reading about and, and the, the, the types of people that I follow and kind of, you know, read blogs on and, and follow on Twitter tend to be people that are from kind of the Valley. Uh, so for lack of a better you know, stereotype, I, I follow a lot of VCs. I follow a lot of kind of thought leaders in the tech world, a lot of founders of companies, and in some cases, politicians talking about this stuff. And there, there was this constant theme that kept popping up. You saw it in like A16Z blog posts, the unbundling of platform economies, or you saw it in uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren's kind of policy papers. We need to break up big tech. Um, you, you see it in like news headlines that pop up every once in a while, like MailChimp getting booted off of Shopify. And so there was this very obvious kind of like narrative bubbling up under the surface of people are starting to recognize that within the online platforms that they participate in on a day-to-day -day basis, there are frictions starting to show up. And those frictions are users versus platform or merchants versus customers or government versus platform company. You know, And all of these have to do with the fact that there's this massive, massive concentration and monopolization of economic interests inside a very, very small number of companies. Um, if I were to put a very simplistic message on this, what I've heard out of the Ethereum community over and over again is we need to build kind of the decentralized alternatives to these businesses. You don't like the search engine, go build a decentralized search engine. You don't like ride sharing, go build a decentralized ride sharing. Mm -hmm. Our model, it was more, hey, these guys have accomplished something. They have network effects. They've given consumer value, but they still are now facing real problems. Could we understand the problems of platform companies? 
Uh, most of those problems have to do with the fact that there are multiple stakeholders coordinating economic activity around a single marketplace, right? So um, let's say advertisers, merchants, and customers, and app developers all rotate like on top of the Shopify marketplace. Mm -hmm. They all have different economic interests. In most cases, they're working for the same outcomes, but in some cases, they're at odds with each other and at odds with the company operating the marketplace. And that was kind of the dynamic we wanted to, to kind of get smarter about. Um, and it felt like a really, really obvious space to apply some of the best practices of crypto economics. How do you create economic alignment between stakeholders that are historically misaligned? Um, how do you give people the ability to have a direct relationship with their counterparty without a platform kind of like owning all of that? So when we, you know, simple examples, when we were talking, we did a lot of interviewing. Once we had a little bit of an aha moment around that, we did a lot of interviewing around stakeholders. We met Shopify merchants, we met YouTubers, we met like literally drivers on Uber. We went and interviewed, um, you know, Twitch streamers, et cetera. And we started kind of figuring out are there commonalities that are starting to pop up in these conversations. And one of the very common ones was I, inter I interact with somebody on the other end of this market, but I don't own that relationship. I don't own that interaction. If I'm a YouTuber, um, I don't own my subscriptions with my viewers. YouTube owns the subscription. So if I decide to move my channel to Twitch one day, I lose all of that, right? So could you create kind of like more direct relationships between these market participants? Um, it's a very vague and kind of like boil the ocean narrative. And it's sort of our North Star is to say the long-term, um, you know, health of online economies is going to rely on stakeholders all feeling like their best interests are being looked out for. So that you don't feel as a business building on top of Shopify, you don't feel this constant risk that Shopify might turn off your API one day because they want to compete with the feature you're building, right? And that happens all the time and very consistently. So how do you create an easier departure so that a business can detach itself from a marketplace like Shopify and go compete on a competing e-commerce platform? Uh, every one of these has a lot of you know, technical implement, implications, things that we need to test out and build. Uh, but there was a few use cases that sort of jumped out to us that would be um, relatively additive in the short term. Like if I think about um, not necessarily having to go convince Uber of my narrative, but what I could do is I could build a, a gig economy reputational system that says, hey, if you're an Uber driver that also drives for Lyft and also delivers for DoorDash, why don't you have a reputation that is kind of meta to all these three platforms, right? Can you pull together your average star rating in a way that it's kind of like one star rating that defines you so that when you start on platform number four, you can start with a reputation on day one. You don't have to like bootstrap from the ground up. And all of those things pointed to this idea that made a lot of sense coming from our blockchain background that to build some of that software, you would need to build it in a neutral space, like on an infrastructure that isn't owned by Uber and isn't owned by anybody. It's just this global accessible infrastructure. Uh, and in that context, when we were talking to companies, it sort of made sense. They didn't, need, they didn't need to understand the blockchain. They needed to understand that this is a technical infrastructure that sits in between all these platform economies. And I can build things that connect to my API, but are sitting outside of my market. So, so um, these open kits that you have, uh, it, it, is there a specific set of features um, that you think would be relevant across these platforms um, and, and these marketplaces that you'd argue should be run on decentralized protocols? Um, or are you going to try to go all in on, you know, the, the decentralized Spotify or the decentralized um, Shopify or, or Uber or, or what have you? I mean, I think on some of these, it's a little early to tell. There's one area that, that the, the first one that we've been building is called Open Economy, the first kit that we're kind of spending most of our time on. And the Open Economy, as you might imagine, is kind of taking the, the best practices of like crypto economics and token design and applying it to businesses outside of the crypto space. So can I make a really easy kit 
that a developer can use to define the, the creation of their own asset class uh, and the use of that asset within their market, right? So, um, but where I, where I think it's even more interesting is if there's a, if there's a, a use case that says, hey, I have a, the same user that interacts with me over two platforms. So let simple example, and I've been using this one a little bit, I'm not sure if it's perfectly applicable, but imagine a YouTuber and a viewer, but that YouTuber also runs a merch store on Shopify because they want to brand themselves and they want to sell t-shirts with their logo on it. And they want to make sure that their viewer on YouTube gets preferential rights on Shopify. Um, there's no mechanical way to do that today, right? So how do I, as a, as a YouTuber, give credit or benefit or reward to my viewer in such a way that he can translate that over to a discount on my Shopify store. Um, that's an integration between YouTube and Shopify, but the middle ground, that logic that exists around where the asset exists needs to sit on some sort of open neutral infrastructure, right? So we're looking for these opportunities to kind of stitch together different platform economies in a way that makes sense. Um, we built a, a first kind of cool integration that we've been testing internally as kind of an HR tool for just for dog fooding uh, in terms of like trying out our own technology. We built this Slack bot uh, and effectively it's a, it's a kit that any Slack bot developer could use that allows me to generate an asset as an admin team inside of Slack. So let's say I'm an HR person. Uh, I can generate an asset, define its rules and say, Hey, everybody in my Slack channel is entitled to give two of these assets to any one of their peers every day. Uh, and now I can in Slack say, Hey, send at Ryan, kudos, you know, and now Ryan receives a little notification saying, Hey, Matt sent you a kudos. Uh, and then at the end of the year, I can spend those kudos on something. I could build that historically without a blockchain. But what I can't do without the blockchain is I can't say, Hey, I want to extract those into another interface. I want to hold those in my own wallet. I want to uh, use them on another marketplace, like a Shopify store that uses those kudos as discounts or something like that. Uh, and so it's kind of bridging these marketplaces together with these new tools that we're, we're really focusing on. We have a lot more exploration to do. We're doing a lot more like customer interviews and things like that. Um, but they're all generally revolving around these types of like cross platform integrations. Uh, at the end of the day, what you're sounding, it, it, the, it sounds like a, um, at the core, it's the reputation system, right. And, and, and kind of the portability of like an individual's identity and, and whatever their contribution has been to a given platform or, service, um, or, you know, bespoke one-to-one, -one, you know, customer. Um, so like, I understand, uh, the why there and, and, and it certainly makes sense. The, the question comes back to, uh, what I think was your original realization with Ethereum versus Aeon, right? Why, why wouldn't that type of reputation system be better off sitting on top of, Ethereum or one of the larger layer one systems. Um, why is this intrinsically valuable or, or important to do with um, the open application network versus as like an ERC 20 or, or some other apparatus? Yeah. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that we, we took away from some of those conversations is that we were getting uh, input that effectively looked like user feedback. And what we started building over the last six months, just as an internal discipline that we didn't have before was like, a view on what product management means in the blockchain space. When you're, when you're actually building features into the protocol, you've got the purest kind of community driven governance model of, Hey, let's decide features as a group. Uh, let's put those features into a list and decide what makes it into the next hard fork and what doesn't. Um, a lot of that feature prioritization is being done based on kind of academic prioritization. Hey, what's, what's most interesting to solve or what's most challenging to solve. Um, and, 
a lot of it is not driven by user requirements that we're hearing from the end user. So if I think of a simple example that we just published in our last hard fork, which happened last week, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk for the last two years in the Ethereum community around something known as meta transactions. The idea that as a user, I should not have to pay gas for my transaction if I'm interacting with an app that the developer wants to pay the gas on my behalf, right? Because I this this goes back to like, hey, I logged into a website to use some sort of feature, and now all of a sudden I need a plugin called MetaMask before I'm allowed to do anything because I need Ether in my account to you know buy CryptoKitty or something like that. Um, we followed that progress very closely, the EIP around meta transactions, and realized that this was never going to get adopted in the short term. It was not being prioritized by the community. But when we started thinking about the type of user we're going after, it was a non-crypto savvy user that was never going to download a plugin called MetaMask or something of the sorts. And so we might need to prioritize that feature because it was something we were hearing from our user. We wanted to have a lot more leverage on the ability to take input from a user base and then translate into a feature requirement for our protocol. Um, you know, not to say that, you know, we're still an open source decentralized network. We don't run any of these nodes. Our community still has to accept what we're building and update their own software, but we're effectively able to kind of govern the prioritization based on input that we're hearing. So we ended up building this thing called third party transaction feeds where as a developer, I can pre-fund gas so that when you call on a function that is in my application, you're not paying for gas on your end. Um, Little things like that that make it easier for us to bring solutions to market to an audience that doesn't know anything about this space. And this was like compounding over time. It's like we saw decisions being made in the Ethereum community that we could not, you know, we could not uh, have any influence over in a significant way because there are so many voices and so many alternative kind of interests in that market. Uh, and so it feels like we're able to, to push the agenda a lot faster on our own protocol, um, including the way we do security, including the way we think about upgrading. Um, you know, when I look at the ETH2 roadmap, I think it's, you know, I, I don't want to say the un, under discussed. I think there's a lot of people discussing it, but I think it is a very, very immeasurable risk right now to businesses building on top of that protocol. The, the underlying system that you're building on could completely change in definition. Um, and we, we wanted to make sure that, hey, we're pitching businesses on coming to our, onto our network a year from now. We're not telling them, oh, by the way, the network you picked is completely different than the way you started and all your smart contracts don't work anymore and you have to rebuild everything from scratch. Um, and yeah. so that... <laughs> so that, that's, that, that's most of our motivation. I mean, I think, you know, I'd be excited to see somebody else kind of take a stab at what we're doing. I still think there's merit in multiple protocols existing because I don't think anybody has kind of, you know, cracked the nut on the perfect design, the perfect go-to-market strategy. I think we're all playing still in a very, very small, a small bubble. Um, so anyways, that's, that's the, the thought process right now. Um, Definitely, uh, I, I think it makes sense. Where where does the token come in um, for the is is it at the uh, for the applications themselves? Will 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 this be an equivalent to gas on the Ethereum network? Yeah, and that, that's the way that's the way Aon's functioned from the beginning. Is you need Aon to use the VM, uh, and so it effectively looks like gas on Ethereum. Uh, most of the use cases that we're talking to uh, companies about have nothing to do with like Aon as a mechanism for payment. They're not using it as a financial asset. They're using it as like an access to computing resources asset. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and even the way we, we expose that to developers is going to have to be thought through in terms of like, how much are we asking a developer to manage its own wallet and buy Aon on a secondary market and things like that. We may package it differently so that it's easier for them to consume. Uh, but Aon is the, the, uh, yeah, the underlying kind of transaction fee structure, um, which also played a big, a big part in the design of our economics. We just, we just hard forked and changed a lot of the economics of our system. But 
a lot of it is building towards a model where uh, miners and stakers, in our case, are being rewarded more by transaction fees than they are by block rewards and, and kind of shifting away from this like block subsidy over time more towards kind of usage-based transaction fees. Uh, and that's where Aon comes in for the end user. Um, and then if I'm a participant in the network from a security perspective, you know, if I'm mining or if I'm staking, then I either earn Aon for that, that function or I'm using Aon to, to, to lock up my stake and to show my, you know, an app to help add security to the system overall. Well, it's, uh, it's good to hear that, that someone's thinking about network fees because, as you know, I've been very unspoken on this with staking systems uh, and, and, and proof-of-stake systems in particular that are basically moving money from one pocket to the other but creating a taxable event most of the time. Uh, and and centralized uh, sources of of failure or, or, you know, honeypots for hackers. So um, I think uh, that all makes sense. You know, one, one thing you brought up uh, before this call um, is the work that you're doing with Waterloo. Now that, that kind of seems like it's, I don't know how that's related to some of the kind of core. Yeah. And I could take it back to your last question about why not build this on top of Ethereum. Uh, the work we're doing with Waterloo is a perfect example. I think one of the things we saw uh, lacking on the Ethereum roadmap, and we saw a little bit of kind of work towards this as a kind of a layer two solution with what Ernst & Young published uh, maybe six months ago with Nightfall, was the fact that there were things that did not exist inside the Ethereum protocol to enable like contract privacy. So there's companies coming in and building kind of tools on top to enable kind of off-chain private computation and, uh, and the verification on-chain. So we wanted the ability to kind of direct our core protocols roadmap towards a more, um, you know, uh, default private, um, protocol. So a lot of that does not come into uh, play at the transactional level. It's not so much how we move coins and, you know, a Zcash style model where we're effectively creating two different types of accounts for, for private transactions. It's more, what is the logic being executed inside of a contract and how do we maintain some of the privacy around that logic? If there's more and more companies and more and more competitors operating on top of the same network. So, we just published uh, a week ago, we published our first test network called Tetrion, uh, which is a privacy preserving test network for smart contract developers. Uh, right now it's being operated separate to our public network, to our mainnet, uh, but it's effectively an experimental area where we're just, we're spending time figuring out what can and can't be done. Most of the limitations there today have to do with cost and, 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 and speed. Uh, so although we can very interestingly do lots of private things, it's very expensive and it's very slow. Um, today we announced, or yesterday maybe, we announced uh, our, our research collaboration with the University of Waterloo. Um, and, you know, from can, Canadians like to call it the Stanford of the North. Um, the University of Waterloo is a very, very strong faculty uh, and department in, in cryptography and specifically a professor that focuses a lot on homomorphic encryption and zero-knowledge proofs. Um, and so we're, we're spent, we just signed up for a three-year research um, partnership with the University of Waterloo. We're, we're contributing a, a, um, about $550,000 of capital. Uh, and then we're looking right now for, for matching government uh, funding. And in Canada, that means we can get funding at the provincial and federal level. Uh, so we're expecting that that project turns into something like a million to a million and a half dollar uh, research initiative with the pure focus of maturing the field of study around private contracts on top of public networks. Um, mostly for our own purposes, because that would that would dictate future features on our roadmap. But we hope the research will just be kind of additive and valuable to the industry in general. Well, we're we're very familiar with Waterloo here uh, at Masari, and uh, and and obviously, you know, so much from the industry uh, between Vitalik and and some of the early Ethereum folks uh, has has gone through Waterloo. 
Uh, I think half of our engineering team uh, also hails from Waterloo, so we will continue to recruit heavily from there uh, and look forward to, uh, to, to getting up for the hackathon. Um, so, you know, the, um, maybe the, the other um, thing that we should talk about is, is uh, just what your process has been around communicating with, with all these stakeholders within the, the Aon and now, you know, OAN uh, ecosystem. Uh, I don't talk about this with, with all of our guests, uh, even though many of them are participating in our registry, um, but you uh, were one of the first uh, supporters. And even before that, you had gone through, I would say, an, a, an extra layer uh, of effort and, and kind of significantly higher threshold of, of reporting via an audit um, back in, in 2018. So what, um, what's been the strategy in general in um, making some of these proactive disclosures and, and, and how did you weigh the risks and, and benefits, particularly given how... Uh, aggressive the SEC has been. Um, and in some cases we've seen, you know, projects get a little bit skittish about, well, like, is, is all this going to be used against us? Like if we're reporting proactively, you know, yeah. it look more like a company. Um, what, you know, aside from the maybe being the right or, or smart business decision, what, um, how did you just weigh that um, back in 2018 and, and kind of how has that evolved? Um, well, time will tell if it was the right decision or not, because, you know, fortunately we haven't heard from the SEC and hopefully they don't watch your podcast too much or your, your YouTube channel. Um, but We're relative unknown in this industry. Um, that being said, I, I think, you know, there was two, two thought processes. Uh, one, um, regardless of current interpretation of securities law, uh, I think, you know, coming from an accounting background, I have a particular sensitivity to uh, what it means to be held accountable to a group of people that have, that have, committed financial resources to something, right? And, and in most cases that historically means stock and shareholders in a company. Um, but in our case, it's different, you know, as an industry. But I don't think the fact that we are shying away from securities regulation is carte blanche to not be accountable and not be responsible to the people that gave financial commitments to us. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of thought through this in two ways. I said, you know, one, how do we make sure this is the best decision for Aon? And two, how do I make sure that if Aon fails at the end of the day, I've left behind a valuable contribution that moves the needle in the right direction. And I think one of the things that has been most detrimental to our industry from my perspective has been the lack of trust people have in this industry, the lack of trust people have in the actors in this industry. Um, and generally it paints all of us with a bad brush. Uh, and it's, and it's been for some projects very difficult to kind of claw back from because you get kind of bucketed in with like, the craziness of a 2017 ICO run um, and trying to establish that you're not just another, you know, fraudulent scam project of 2017. Um, and so this is, you know, a little bit of a, of a, of a, you know, putting a flag in the ground to say, this is what we think should be the expected behavior. I mean, we were super excited when, when Masari started this closure process, but we thought we could go one or two steps further uh, with, you know, how much information we were disclosing um, and we're doing that now on a quarterly basis. Uh, we kind of do self-publishing on a quarterly basis, and then we'll do a, a larger end-of-year publishing, uh, just so that people have kind of a constant view of our state of state of finances, uh, state of our you know management of our assets. Uh, you've seen the first and probably not the last of like lawsuits happening between investors and founding teams, and um, you know coin holders demanding more information about like, how did my money get spent? And some of this is leading in the headlines and some of this is still happening behind the scenes. Um, and our hope here was just to continuously provide confidence to people in our community that are continuing to trust us. Um, you know, 
I think there is probably risks associated with that. When I look forward over the next two and a half years, and I say two and a half years because that's effectively the runway we have in front of us, um, I know that as I get closer to the end of that runway, it's going to start leading to more aggressive questions about what are you doing about your funding situation. So um, it's going to put us in a tough spot to answer those questions, but it also puts a little bit of a clock on us to solve that problem. I think it's shocking to me, and I remember one particular story from maybe just under a year ago, of finding out a project is going bankrupt the day before, not a year before, not six months before, not three months before, because you had no access to information, right? So mm -hmm. uh, I think that's an unfair uh, kind of status quo when you know that there are people buying into your asset on a day-to-day -day basis on exchanges. Uh, I think you owe a certain amount of transparency to those people. So uh, that's been our intent, and I think we're going to continue doing that. Um, what's next uh, over the course of the next couple quarters? Um, so in terms of product uh, development, a lot of, I think the big, the big uh, change of, of resource allocation for us is the fact that we've spent the last two years, I'd say 80% building the protocol and we're going to spend the next year, 80% building uh, the things on top of the protocol, right? So not to say the protocol has to stop improving, but we want to show and go a little bit higher up the stack to show how this gets integrated into a business. So that's going to come through the form of uh, tools and SDKs. And in some cases, like 90% built applications that we can just kind of bring to a customer or user and say, this is how it would work inside the context of your, of your ecosystem of your market. So a lot of our resources are being reallocated to kind of going up the stack uh, to demonstrate some of this stuff. And, and, uh, I think the, the, the broad sense was it's not good enough to say build it and they will come. You need to sort of build what they might use, you know? And uh, so that's the bet we're taking over the next definitely six months. And I can't say we have a view as to like Q3, Q4 yet, uh, but we've been planning out our priorities for Q1 and Q2. Um, in the protocol itself, uh, we still have goals against uh, growing our stakeholder participation um, or coin, coin holder staking, I should say. Right now, we're sitting just over 60 million Aon staked, uh, which is great. I mean, we're coming up on 15% of the network in the staking uh, contract. Uh, the goal will, get, will be to get that to 30% over the next few months. Uh, and so constantly adding new pools, constantly reaching out to larger holders that have not kind of done the deed yet. Uh, and that's been moving really, really well. We're at now 32 active staking delegators that are well-known companies and well-known pools from other ecosystems that have joined us. Uh, and then same thing on hashing. Uh, you know, working to make sure that our mining community is well engaged and excited about what we're doing so that they continue to provide hash power to our network. Um, yeah, that's probably the summary of it. And I mean, se separate to that, and I think it's related but unrelated, we've shied away for a long time about focusing on our secondary market and focusing on our asset. Uh, and one thing we're doing a lot more of is spending time thinking about what does a healthy market structure look like around an asset like ours? How do we effectively communicate the value proposition of our asset versus others without telling people what price it should be trading at or without giving away Teslas? Uh, and so there's a little bit of you know, playing around with just making data more available, making the jobs of analysts easier so that they know how to report on our metrics. They know how to report on the types of things that we're tracking, like uh, transaction usage and things like that inside of our system. So uh, there's a lot of things being built uh, towards kind of the coin holder ecosystem to make sure that there's available information for people who want it. And, uh, and we can hopefully expect to see more of those metrics uh, on Masari as well, uh, whether it's directly from us uh, or our friends at, uh, at Flipside Crypto, who I know you're working with as well. Yeah. Um, but much, much more to look out uh, on the fundamentals front in 2020 for sure. Yeah, looking forward to that. Um, well, Matt, it's been great having you. Uh, I know it's been a, a, a long and winding road, and, and uh, we'll see how long this uh, renewed bear market 
uh, last because I think everybody thought we were out of the woods and uh, not so fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but certainly good to, to see the post a couple weeks ago. Um, I thought it was it was pretty pretty on point. So rooting for you and your team, and hopefully uh, you have a, a strong end of the year in 2020. But we'll be in touch before then. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. You can check out Matt on Twitter. Matt, what's your handle? At Matt Spoke. Two teams. Spoke. We will link to the show notes. Uh, and, of course, you can check out the Open Application Network uh, and all their disclosures on Masari, in addition to all of their other links if you're looking to get into their Reddit, Telegram, Twitter, what have you. It's all there. So, uh, otherwise, until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.